What I'd like to talk to you about tonight is whatever it is that you might find most perplexing about meditation of the Dharma. <laughs> Okay, Adam. Just on that topic. Uh, I, I, I was curious. Um, <coughs> one of the things that I have to work with a lot is doubt. And you, you just touched on it earlier tonight about how up until you have the faith or experience, you have to have this kind of just faith. And um, I find in the big picture, I can act with faith. I can sit daily and I can you know, show up for Dharma talks and mostly walk the walk. Where I find that really difficult especially really high emotion situations. Um, like right now, I talked last week about a lot of fear stuff, um, or kind of emotional stuff. And I found that the high reactive emotions, um, and especially these ones that are really like attractive for me now, like because of stress, that I can't get perspective, and I can't kind of um, anchor into what I kind of know through my practice to be true. Um, so I, I find myself a lot of times just kind of lost and confused and not being able to commit and have the intention or to sustain the intention intention um, to like go to the body sensations instead of going to the content of fear, fearful thinking. And I don't know, I mean, I, I just, I guess if you could speak more into kind of faith in real time and hmm. also how that progresses because it's, it's actually really frustrating me right now. And I'm not, I just, I can't. Okay, so what, what you've asked about is is doubt and I like the way you put the other faith in real time. Yeah. Uh, because you are experiencing a lot of difficult emotional states and that makes it that makes it hard to commit to practice and doubt is a big part of that. And, and more so in the day to day, like more so than just the going through life, not so much in my sitting practice, where it's really simple what I have to do, um, but more when it's like a matter of doing basic things like going into the, the, the sensations. More like which? Uh, like when it's, it's things like going into the sensations in the body, things, but things outside of the sitting, things in, in the life. It's okay, so yeah. more like day to day things and, and yeah, you said like. But dealing with thought content. I mean, dealing with the mind. Well, the, the opposite of doubt is a kind of confidence. You know, the problem with the, with the word faith, of course, is that in our culture there is a lot of things that people you know, try to take on, blind faith. But fortunately, we don't need to deal with that. The kind of real-time faith that you're talking about is a confidence that comes, it, it really comes from uh, three sources, and two of these are most important. Um, one of these is uh, understanding. To the degree that which you have an understanding of something, 
and it makes sense to you, then to that degree you'll be able to sustain confidence in it. And so that's a very, very important thing. Okay. Um, the second is experience. To the degree that which you've had in these kinds of teachings confirmed in your own experience, that will create confidence. The third and the least important is the confidence that uh, you have in the, in the source of these. But that's not insignificant, you know. And so if you're looking at uh, a, a teaching like the Buddha Dharma that has a 2,500-year history, that's somewhat reassuring and makes it a little easier to sustain confidence. And if uh, the teacher you're hearing it from or the teachers you hear it from or, or the books you get it from, uh, if... Uh, if you, if they, in one way or another, instill confidence uh, as well, that helps enormously. But experience is, is the ultimate instiller of confidence, and to the degree that you haven't yet had the experience, then that's where doubt has the most uh, opportunity to work away. And so, the most difficult thing, perhaps, to um, not to have doubt about is the uh, culmination, the fulfillment of the path. Um, and I made, uh, you know, it. What the promise here is, in terms of this fulfillment, is that you can attain a kind of wisdom and understanding that once you have it, you will no longer uh, be subject to the kind of distress, exactly the kind of distress that you're experiencing now and that is causing that doubt to arise. So this is the sort of predicament that you have to overcome the doubt to do the work that's necessary to achieve that realization, but once you do, you'll never again be subject to this kind of, uh, these kind of distressful thoughts. And that, that is something that's so, that, that is really remarkable and that uh, requires more faith than anything else. But there are all kinds of things that lead up to that. And they can provide you with the interim confidence based on the interim experience. And that's really uh, what we should focus on, what you should focus on. Um, and that, in turn, uh, is dependent upon a lot of understanding. So both of these, both of these are things that you should be using to counteract the doubt that's arising. I know you've had some positive experiences in your practice. Uh, and so it's helpful to recall those. But also, this particular Buddha Dharma has two, uh, they're almost two parts. They're, they're, they're so intertwined and so interrelated that uh, it may be a bit contrived to divide them, but there is a real distinction between 
One is all of the things, all of the kinds of work that you can do on yourself. If you have an understanding and if you apply that, apply that understanding in your daily life and if you practice it, it will produce results, small results, but cumulative results that, that add up to big changes. And uh, you actually have to do that kind of work before you can get the other aspect, the other half, or the other part of it, which is when that radical transformation happens that permanently changes things about the way your mind works and, and the way you are. So the two really aren't separable, but in terms of how the path unfolds, there's all the little progress that takes a lot of daily work that changes you into the kind of person that can make the transformative leap that takes you to the end of the progress process. So what you're experiencing right now, if I understand you correctly, is that you're beset by a lot of emotions, concerns, uh, fear is one that you've mentioned. Uh, it might, might be a different set of labels for other people, but I think everybody, you are beset by uh, particular problems unique to you and your situation in life that do have the same effect, that in one way or another, they're getting in the way of you practicing the kind of daily mindfulness, excuse me, daily mindfulness that substantially changes the way you are and the way that you react to things. And so that's that's really the problem we've got to zero in on. How can Adam practice mindfulness uh, when, when, for example, he's experiencing fear? How can he bring himself to practice mindfulness of the sensations of the body so that it gives his mindfulness a, a, a handle on what's happening rather than doing the, the more most natural thing uh, and the habitual thing, which is to become caught up in the emotion itself and then become trapped by the cycling thoughts that keep going through the mind over and over again and keep keep it going. Does that describe it pretty well? Yeah. yeah. And it is, it's, that, it's the quality of the habit. That's why it's so powerful. It's like, yeah. if I don't have any foundation or what it feels like, no foundation mm -hmm. to, to kind of um, hold on to in that torrent of So, uh, and, and if I'm not mistaken, um, what you are saying is that is that sometimes even you know that what you should be doing is practicing mindfulness and and choosing those aspects of the experience which you can be most objective about, but you're not doing it. Yeah, and, and not to make it more complicated, but part of how it plays out is also there's this feeling of like repeatedly going up against this and failing, like there's a feeling of defeat that mm -hmm. also plays into it. Um, and I was talking to Julie about it last week, and it's kind of like I started to try to um, almost label these thoughts mm -hmm. uh, as either um, the what-if thought and the why-bother.
Mm -hmm. and, that, and then ignore the content and to like varying degrees of success, but that's absolutely what it is. So the what if is that doubt and it's the fear. And the why bothers is kind of torpor, apathy, depression, kind of a something. And and those but once again they're both just have like so much energy behind them mm -hmm. and so much kind of old programming or whatever that it it they trump what I think I know to be the right the right choice. Did uh, did labeling labeling them help? Sometimes after the fact, but I haven't been, I haven't been very successful in doing it. I mean, they're just really strong, so I get that. It's just like, but what if? And then literally, it's like, but what if? But what if? But what if? Like it, it, mm -hmm. it doesn't work. Like they're just, I'm like, but that's a what if thought. And then literally, my mind comes up with a but what if scenario. <laughs> what if it's not? I mean, it's like it's really that obnoxious, and it's like it's getting to the point where it's like if I start being mindful. I mean, this is like this trap I've gotten into where mindfulness is only backfiring because I'm so aware of it. I can get into my thoughts so deeply. Yeah. Just I'll be in the middle of the day, like working, or like I'll be in the lab, and like I'm trying to focus on something really, like cognitively engaging. Like I'm trying to work, talk to somebody, explain something. All of a sudden, like, but what if? What if? What if? And it's like become this like sick, weird thing that happens now, and I'm like, this is not what I planned on. <laughs> When you've got a habit going, uh, and, and these are pretty strongly entrenched habits, you you know they're not going to be overcome easily. Okay, but the, there's a number of different things that uh, uh, might might be helpful. But first of all, yours was a good idea of labeling the thoughts to help you from to, to, uh, getting into them. And uh, that's really what you want. Anything, anything that can keep you in a more objective uh, perspective with regard to what's happening. And labeling's a good idea. You said that it was more after the fact. But that's all right, too. If you, uh, if you label the thoughts after the fact, then that might help you to label them while they're happening next time. Mm -hmm. That would be the advantage of it. Mm -hmm. But there's always the danger, too, that you, uh, you start off saying, you know, retrospectively, I think I'll label the thoughts that happen, and then you just get right into the whole thing again. So watch out for that one. But, but uh, to the degree that you could do, can do that, label things, that's a great idea. Uh, and to help you do that is uh, to review the, the really basic principles of the Dharma is, is very helpful. You are experiencing what the first noble truth is about. Okay? Suffering. That's what we're talking about here. It's a situation where suffering has happened. And so the more fully and completely you understand uh, granted at a conceptual and intellectual level, but still, the more fully and completely you understand the first noble truth, the more that understanding is going to help you when you find yourself in a situation that that truth is all about. So, how well do you understand the truth, what's called the truth of suffering? Well, so in this context, because that is, I mean, that's something I keep trying to look at. What I, I 
I mean, all this stuff, I, this is, I, these are totally things that are coming out of like the last retreat with you. I know that. And, and, and one of the things I see, one of the reasons it's so hard for me not to go into the content of these thoughts, I'm realizing more and more, I hope I'm really deeply realizing this, but intellectually I'm realizing that it's because I'm really attached to my thought, my analytic thought, as my tool for fixing myself. And, and my big thing is, I absolutely can't, I, it's the hardest thing in the world for me is to surrender to the process, to surrender to my awareness, working on it without me. And, and, and it is, it's totally controlling, I think. Um, so, you know, it's like, and it's so funny, I mean, this was, a, that retreat was like, it'd be like, here comes the thought content, and it's like, and I just have to peek. You know, I just have to think, like, what is it? What if it's really important? <laughs> like, check the, 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 the door's locked. Like, you should have a little bit more time. And, and so I think that's where, I think that's where the clinging is. It's, it's this sense of control and, mm-hmm. and being able to understand it intellectually. And, and, I, and it, I mean, it's like one of those things, like, I learn over and over again it doesn't work, but I don't remember that. It's like, it doesn't add up in my mind necessarily. It's, and it's all, it's all a matter of being able to remember this stuff. <laughs> when you don't remember, then, you know, I don't know. But that is, that's where I'm, that's where I'm attached. And maybe that is, I mean, maybe that is a realization that's starting to get more solidified. Well, I, well I, the better that you can understand what it is that you're doing, then uh, uh, the, more, the more likely you uh, can stop doing it. But... Um, but you didn't really answer my question. Do you really understand what the truth of suffering is telling you? What that teaching is about? Well, to me, well, I guess I would say it's it's about clinging. I mean, it's about it's about. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way I would understand, especially with this, is it's it's about my clinging to the control. It's about my clinging to understanding, uh, controlling the circumstances of my fixing my thought, changing what, changing it from what it is. And, and all that does is compound it. And it's like, I don't want to have these fierce, full, and secure thoughts. What if I keep having these thoughts? What if I never get control over this? What if it's not working? What if, what if, what if. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But what it is, it's, it's, I guess, to, yeah, to me, it's the attachment to being able to control. It's the, it's the, and, it, and it is, it's the resistance, too, to what it, what's going on. It's a resistance to the fact that this is kind of how I am in the world right now. There's somebody with these kind of thoughts that sometimes seem to be there almost all the time. But that's what it is. Am I right? Is that <laughs> well, what, what's happening is, is you're, you're convinced that you are a real, genuine, solid self. <laughs> and I really like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and unfortunately, this this these fear and these emotions are happening to this self, and you 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 want to fix yourself. By, by thinking your way through these problems. And you already know you can't, but you keep doing that. Because what does your self, what does your self 
do. And, and, how, and how does it fix psychological things? <laughs> so, you just keep on doing the same thing. So, you know, the, the simple, straightforward practice that you should do is whenever you find yourself doing this fruitless thinking, is just try to bring your attention to uh, the present moment. Bring your attention to the breath and stop, uh, you know, stop allowing yourself to be caught up by those thoughts. It's, if you don't, if you don't give those thoughts energy, then they will lose strength. And it's anything that you can find to do to keep from giving those thoughts energy is going to make make it easier to continue not giving energy to those thoughts. So that's why anything that you can use, it, and it's all about where you put your attention on. Those thoughts are coming out. If you put your attention on the sensations of your breath, then you, your attention can't be on the thoughts at the same time. There'll be an awareness of the thoughts in the periphery, but you can't pay attention to two things at once. Uh, you can pay attention to the sensations in your body that are produced by your emotions, and that will keep you from dwelling on the emotional content and the thoughts that feed the emotions. And so that's why you want to do that, if you can. And then, you know, to the degree that you can, without getting caught by the, the contents of the emotions and the thoughts, if you could just be mindful of what's going on. And this, this is, you know, you're, you've described how you judge yourself and you describe how these processes are taking place. So you're, you're aware of the processes that are, that are taking place. But at some point you might find that you can be mindful of them taking place without being sucked into the, you know, the whirling vortex of what's happening so that that it becomes more uh, an experience of, uh, oh yeah, there's those thoughts coming up. Oh yeah, the, there's that desire to be engaged in those thoughts. Uh, you know, and anytime you feel yourself being sucked into them, to you know, go back to the sensation of the breath, or how does this make my body feel, or something like that. But you you won't do that until you become convinced that that's a better solution than trying to think your way through it. I'm realizing part of the trap I've fallen into is thinking because I have been really working on bringing my mindfulness, mindfulness into the day in a kind of rigorous way, at least when it comes to my attention, mm -hmm. that there's an opportunity right now to be mindful. I'm realizing also what I'm doing, though, is I'm mistaking being mindful in the present in a useful way. I'm mistaking what I'm doing with this, engaging with the thoughts directly and really vividly as being mindful. Like I'm, I'm going in with the intention of being present and then and then these thoughts are there and then I engage with the thoughts and part of my reaction to that, part of the story I developed around that is like being mindful sucks yeah. now. Like every time I go into the present now it's a horrible place to be. Yeah. But it's not obviously like you're saying, it's really not I'm engaging with the thoughts, I'm not actually being that, present. That's right, yeah. 
you, you can see that. You know, and, and that happens in meditation retreats, you know, mindfulness meditation retreat, having this wonderful sex fantasy. And then, well, that's what's happening. I'm being mindful. <laughs> Knowing that that's what's happening is being mindful, but being caught in it is not. And there's, there's a real, very, very real difference between the two. Um, and that's why it's good to have something that's, you know, something like a physical sensation to keep falling back on. To keep, you know. But uh, the idea of being in the present, that is, that's a really good one. You know, to be in the practice of doing that. Uh, don't, don't try to learn how to be in the present by uh, doing it whenever you're uh, caught in a, a, intense emotions. That's that's not the time that you practice it. The time you practice it is is all the other times when it's relatively easy to do, and that way you get good at it. And then when you get good at it, then you can be in the present when when there's strong emotions. Uh, practicing mindfulness, watching your thoughts, being in the present—all of these things are the skills, and you need to you you can't. You can't wait until a house is on fire to pull out the manual and learn how to, you know, uh, to do these things. You, you learn how to do them first, so that when the time comes, that you can you can respond. So practice being mindful. Practice being mindful right now. What what is the present? What's happening right now? I mean, right now, are you, are, you, are you aware of the sensations in your toes right now? Yeah, I was more aware of the sensations in my stomach, but yeah. Okay, but the sensations in your toes were happening right now, too. And the sounds of the traffic, you know, and the feeling of the air. I mean, how, how does that feel? Yeah, this, the, the present moment is just absolutely cram-packed with all kinds of things. Uh, it's more than your mind can possibly encompass. So, uh, and I think maybe to a certain degree, that's why our minds tend to like to slip off into their own fabrications because they're so much simpler. <laughs> but uh, the presence, though, has the richness to it. And if you can just get in the habit of, of tapping into that, and it's the same formula, first of all, Bodily sensations. How does that feel? How does it, yeah, some good ones, or some bad ones, or some neutral ones. And I don't know about you, but right now for me, there's uh, the majority of them are actually kind of pleasant. You know, the air feels really good in this room, and it's nice to be able to breathe. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm comfortable, and uh, there's the familiarity of the sounds of the city, the airplane flying by. So the present, the present moment, get in the habit of checking into it. What is the state of your mind right now? You know, uh, what is your emotional state? See, I can sense what my emotional state is. Can you sense what your emotional state is right now? Yeah. Don't need to analyze it. You just kind of tune in and get an idea and, uh, of what it is. And, you know, and 
you're not sure, just go with your first hunch or move on to something else. Your, your, your mental state, your emotions and mental state are kind of the same thing, but, you know, is your mind agitated right now? Maybe a little bit. Is your mind dull right now? Uh, is there happiness? Is there desire? Is there fear? Is there worry? What's happening in your mind in the moment? So these are all ways of bringing yourself into the present and practicing being in the present, which when you're in an intense emotional state, you can call on just like that. You can, okay, what's happening here, right? Get in your body. Once you get in your body, then you've got you to handle on the present, and then you can say, okay, what's my mental state? And you can see what's happening. Well, what thoughts are coming up? Are these going to be any use or not? Uh, and in most cases, they're probably not. <laughs> unless, unless they're thoughts about, you know, the, the sort of principles of Dharma that you've really come to understand and that you can learn to apply. Like that, you know, what the first noble truth is saying that, that pain and pleasure in life are inevitable, but suffering and happiness are entirely optional, and your mind creates both happiness and suffering. So if you really understand that, anytime you find yourself suffering, call that to mind. All right, this is something the mind is doing. And don't even use the word mind. This is something the mind is doing. Or be even more accurate and say, this is what one part of the mind is doing. Right? And it's doing it because uh, for some reason or another, according to its programming, it's conditioning uh, due to my past, it makes sense to it to generate those emotions right now. I'm curious if you touched on this and that you're kind of coming back to it with this or it makes me think of me, but I, um, I mean, one of the things when you're saying it, this idea that, you know, I'm coming at this with a sense of self mm-hmm. that's being acted on by, I mean, even when I can remove myself from the thought, it's like the thought's still acting on the sense of self. Yeah. And still would have trouble with, um, I mean, it's definitely, it's something that becomes, I mean, I do feel like, to some degree, the boundaries of self have been kind of been, I mean, even before I started formally with you, I could see that there was just like this, this kind of, there wasn't a complete belief in that anymore. It, was, it wasn't a complete? A complete belief in this something that I'm comfortable with, at least intellectually, and it even feels that way more and more. But one of the things I'm not sure about, I think it is something that confuses me when I try to even speculate about what it'd be like to experience in the world without any sense of self. I still feel like there's going to be this, there's going to be some desire to have the awareness, the central point of consciousness, whatever is still present, not experiencing pain, like not experiencing these unpleasant thoughts. And, And one of the things it's not something that's driving me nuts, but like when, when these spiritual thoughts come up, when I don't, when I think there's not a self there to control this, that there's just these thoughts, and there's other thoughts that are maybe going to overpower those thoughts, etc. and these thoughts are just programming, there's still the feeling like, I don't want to experience, I, I mean, it makes it even, it makes the thoughts even bigger, because mm-hmm. they're really what define this moment, 
those thoughts. They, they taint everything that they color. And I still can't imagine not wanting to, not wanting to experience pleasant thoughts, mm-hmm. to experience a pleasant lens. Um, I, don't, I just can't, I'm just curious how that plays out, how, that, how you reconcile that. I mean, I know the ultimate goal is that you just accept whatever's coming because it's less painful than, than not accepting it, and then it resolves itself. Maybe that's a simple answer. Okay, but I thought your problem was identifying with the unpleasant thoughts. (laughs) But it's not. It's worrying about what's it like not to identify with the pleasant ones. No, I got lots of thoughts. I'm just curious about that. There's identifying, but it's like it's become more abstract because now I'm kind of thinking of it in terms of I'm not a self, but still everything I'm experiencing is this thought. Even if I if, even if I'm not identifying it as my thought, it's still the the the, the view that the lens that awareness is looking out of, which mm-hmm. is unpleasant. But maybe when you really realize it, that it loses that unpleasantness because you're not identifying. Maybe all the suffering does come out of it. Okay, well, let, let me explain that a little bit. Okay. You know, you, you don't need to try to imagine what it would be like not to have any sense of self at all. Okay, that, um, that is what defines somebody who has achieved a level of awakening of an arhat or Buddha. They have no sense of self at all. And that might be an entertaining intellectual enterprise to try to think what that must be like. But what's really important for you is to recognize that uh, the self is a mental construct that your mind's behavior and your mind's reactions are based upon and it is possible to change that and you don't you have the experience of being selfless all the time whenever you're completely involved in something and you're not thinking about yourself that's that's the place that you want to be. You know, when you're ra- relaxed and speaking what's on your mind with no sense of self, that's one kind of experience we've all had. And then there's the other kind of experience where you're very self-conscious and you're talking and everything that you're saying, you're listening to and interpreting it, how is this self going to be seen as a result of these words and stuff like that. So that's the difference. So you would like to get to the place where your mind's behavior and your mind's reactions aren't all coming out of this fabricated idea of a self, this fictionalized idea of somehow a permanent, uh, separate, singular self that, uh, that everything has to be evaluated in, in terms of so that whatever's happening is, is happening and you know whether it's pleasant or unpleasant you can just you can accept it you can be with it 
and you don't have to magnify it through this this lens of the self. So, so um, and you know, with physical pain, how you can either see it as a sensation, or you can become the self that's really resisting it, wants to get rid of it, you know, or is worried about, you know, oh, I, if if this goes on for another X amount of time, I don't think I, I don't think I can stand it, you know, right? And it makes it terrible. It makes it just really excruciating. And it's the same thing with emotional pain, as you know. It's exactly the same thing. It's only with reference to the conceptual idea of an ongoing, continuing self. I mean, when you're experiencing fear, if you can come into the present moment, the amount of fear that can be present in the present moment is kind of, it's small. It's actually quite manageable. It's when you pull all of the fear that you think you're going to experience in the future into the present moment, you know, then, wow, that becomes really huge. So, and that's, that's just an example of how, of, of this unfortunate way that our minds tend to work. You know, the, the, instead of being in the present, there's the assumption that I am a self, that, and, and everything that is happening now and will happen in the next five minutes and ten minutes and twenty minutes is all coming down on this poor self and, and, and then it becomes just unbearable. If you can let go of that, then you only have to deal with what's happening here and now. Another approach that you might take is, you know, because I, I think you, you really do have a lot of attachment to self. And I'm not necessarily saying that you're different than anybody else, but it's we're coming right up to the surface here with your experiences. And that is to, if you can just kind of hold the question in your mind, who's experiencing this? Whose thoughts are these? You know, just what is this self anyway? Not, you know, not, not trying to analyze, but just being open, that, that sort of open, okay, where is this self that this is all about? You know? And the reality is that thoughts are just arising, and you don't even know where they're coming from. And emotions are just arising from a place that is not visible to your conscious awareness. You only see the end result. And if you can see it that way, without identifying with it as a self, then you'll be able to deal with it. And so. As soon as you you start having the thoughts like, you know, I am whatever the label for the emotion happens to be, you know, as soon as those I thoughts start coming, just open yourself up to that question, well, who and what and where is this I anyway? And I think that, I think that might help you some. But you really you need this understanding. I don't shortchange, and I keep coming back to this, don't shortchange the importance of having an intellectual understanding of what this very profound teaching is. That um, you are a collection of mental processes unfolding <coughs> moment by moment. 
And all there is in any given moment is consciousness and the object of consciousness, which might be thoughts, might, might be emotions, it might be physical sensations, whatever it is. But that's that's what you are. That's what the that's what the reality is. And that uh, all of this, the the reality that you're experiencing, is created by your mind. Yeah, I know you've heard me say that a lot of times. But think it through. You know, when you're standing in the shower, don't waste your time. Think through. What does it really mean? <laughs> that, you know, my reality is is being created by my mind, because it is. And the more that you can clearly see and understand that, you realize that your happiness and your suffering, no matter what form your suffering takes. Or, or your happiness. It's not due to anything outside of the mind. It's coming from the mind itself. And just knowing this gives you a, an enormous advantage over it. Just knowing that's where it comes from. But you go beyond that. Okay, why is my mind doing this? Well, my mind has been programmed by umpteen zillion years of evolution to respond to whatever's pleasant and unpleasant with desire and aversion. And that's, you know, that's the innate programming. And the fact is that whenever I want something to be different than the way it is, you know, when fear is there and I want no fear to be there, the result is I'm going to suffer. Because mm -hmm. that's what, that's what dukkha means, is being unsatisfied. And that's what craving means, is wanting things to be different. I mean, uh, Craving is the cause of suffering because craving and suffering are just two different sides of exactly the same coin. You can't really separate them from each other. You can't have suffering without craving and you can't have craving without suffering because they are. Dissatisfaction is wanting things to be different from what they are. Craving is wanting things to be different from the way they are. Therefore, craving is to be in a state of, of suffering. You know, and so come to really recognize these these truths, and that, you, that whatever you're experiencing, your mind is, has come to understand what uh, what karma really means, not this airy fairy new age. I oh, it's actually old age. I whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that happens to you is due to some mosquito you swatted in a previous lifetime. It has nothing to do that with that. Whatever experience you have is a result of the cumulative conditioning of your mind, your five aggregates that you're experiencing right now. And however you react to what you're experiencing right now, that's going to condition what you experience in the future. And so come to realize and understand how that works. Put that together with the fact that your reality is mind-created, and your mind creates your reality on the basis of this karmic conditioning, which you're always generating. Every moment you're generating karmic conditioning. You're generating karmic conditioning because of the desire and aversion that arise. And this is the cycle, this is the samsara that you're in. So, come to understand these things and come to recognize them when they're happening. And this will give you 
I think, a lot of the confidence that you need. If you're, if you're in a state of fear and these thoughts are cycling and the what if and the judgment and everything else is starting to happen, if you can remember at that time, you know, well, my mind creating the fear, it's a result of past causes and conditions, my mind's creating these thoughts, they're the result of past causes and conditions. Uh, if I buy into the thoughts, they get stronger. If I buy into the fear, I give it energy, that's creating new karma, that's creating the karma to have more fear tomorrow or some other day. That's, a, that's creating the karma to have these same thoughts come back again. And arm yourself with, with other kinds of thoughts and other kinds of emotions. Uh, thoughts and emotions that are just exactly the opposite of the ones that are the problems. Yeah. Anger, fear, counteract them with uh, uh, compassion and with, uh, with hope, appreciation, beauty, things like this. Confidence, trust. Uh, cultivate those. And don't try to cultivate trust when you're in the middle of a panic attack. Cultivate trust. <laughs> Cultivate trust when the, you know, when your other emotions have given you a break. Then, you know, you learn to cultivate the, those positive ones. Understand the this formula of uh, the, an individual is no more than the five aggregates, and there is no self besides that. The five aggregates, at least in terms of the relative reality that you're living in, they are real. But there is no, there is no self besides that. So, and that's what we're talking about, saying that well, my feelings, my emotions, my thoughts, my mental states, they're just parts of these aggregates. My bodily feelings that are happening is just part of these five aggregates. And they're impermanent. They're in constant flux. They're constantly changing. Finally, feeling fear right now, if I really look at the fear, and this is where the mindfulness comes in again, if you really look at the fear, it's constantly changing. It, it's changing in its qualities, and it's getting stronger, and it's getting weaker, and it's, you know, it's attached to this kind of thought, and then it's attached to another kind of thought, moment to moment. It's not the same. It's all changing. So, all, all of these Dharma truths, the Four Noble Truths, Five aggregates, uh, no self, emptiness, impermanence. Uh, these are all the mental tools that you need to have. And you need to really think them through and understand them so that they become available to you when you need them. And then the really practical tools are mindful awareness. Mindful awareness. It takes a while to learn to use it. But all mindful awareness is, is shining the brilliant, clear light of the mind, the clear light of consciousness on what's actually happening so that all those parts of your mind in the back room that operate invisibly get some feedback as to what their activities are doing, <laughs> what kind of results they're really producing. That's what mindfulness is, the practice of mindfulness. And the other really important practice is the one of recognizing unwholesome mental states and unwholesome thoughts and cultivating wholesome mental states and wholesome thoughts in their place. So if you practice 
this kind of mindfulness, you will gradually begin to, to change uh, because of the effect of mindfulness. And it won't be an intellectual analytical process. It will be because, as I say, that clear light of mindfulness has provided feedback to those invisible conditioned mental mechanisms and now they have a new basis for their conditioning is changed as a result of that. And if you do that often often enough, their conditioning will be changed completely enough that something arises and it produces a different kind of result. Um, likewise, um, cultivating positive uh, thoughts, emotions, mental states uh, in, in, uh, to counteract the unwholesome this is really, this is the kind of conditioning that's creating, you know, what, whatever happens in any given moment, uh, there's, there's a whole lot of different mental processes taking place. And some are competing with each other and some are cooperating with each other. And what you experience consciously is the end result after they've, you know, all sort of struggled to exert themselves. So what you do by consciously cultivating loving kindness, compassion, uh, hope, trust, all these other things, is you're, uh, in a sense, you're, you're, you're loading the board of directors so the next time there's a vote, <laughs> the chance it's going to go your way instead of the way that it has gone before. These will produce gradual change over time. They will develop the confidence, but they'll also produce a kind of transformation in you that can lead to, to that that real dramatic shift that you're looking for. You see, you can make these changes even while you're still in that place of, of believing in your personal self, the way you do before you have managed to overcome that. You can make a lot of really positive changes. But in the course of that, if you, your insight grows and your experience unfolds such that at some point, that concept of self just can't hold anymore. And it, it no longer becomes, it, it's no longer the mental construct that all these different mental processes are operating out of. Then you will, you will change dramatically overnight instead of, you know, whereas before you were, you were chipping away at a lifetime's accretion of, you know, and, and not just a lifetime, because, you know, uh, your genes cause your brain to form in a particular way, which caused your mind to work in a particular way. And this has, like I say, zillions of years of evolution behind it. Uh, funny little four-legged things running around on the ground. As soon as they had minds, they had to conceptualize themselves as separate and independent from their environment so that they would make sure that they got the most food and they got the best mating partner and so on and so forth. And you inherited that. So that's part of what you're dealing with too. But anyway, so you're chipping away at both this inherited predispositions and at all this conditioning that you've added on all your life a little bit at a time. And, and you make some great progress. But what's really wonderful is when you finally shed that attachment to being in a self, living in a world of things that make you happy or unhappy, 
and instead realize that you are a process that is just part of a bigger process, it's like all of a sudden, you know, it's like instead of chipping away, now it's a big crack and the whole thing comes open and you are literally liberated. Freed from that prison, and so you might have to, you might have to take the <laughs> what's that? <laughs> she said, "Yay!" <laughs> <laughs> That's what I say too. Yay! <laughs> so you might have to take it on faith that the end result can be this sudden cracking open in the shell and experience of liberation. But that doesn't need to be the basis for your practice because the thing is that every every day, every time you successfully practice mindful awareness and practice the cultivation of wholesome mental states, you're going to see immediate results that help, help you to continue along. You need that support of understanding, and then you need the practice of these things to give you the genuine experiential results, and then you can take my word for it as the third basis for, for confidence. <laughs> and and that was, that's what will overcome your doubt. So, all right, what's wrong with that? Yes, Intentionally, because you've talked about that, yeah. that it is, is the mind is always whatever part of the mind is operating. 
stuff. Like it doesn't want to experience this anxiety. It doesn't want to experience That's suffering. Right. It thinks it's helping. Um, but I don't know. I mean, to me, there's just there's this there's this real fear around the idea that if there isn't any control, there's not really any influence for myself from what I want. I mean, there's a part of me that knows I want that, but I feel like there's this other part of me that I almost can't believe isn't trying to sabotage me all the time because it literally is. My mind is constantly sabotaging me or sabotaging this intention to not. I mean, like you were saying, like I know you, you get, I mean, I can imagine you get frustrated dealing with me as a student because my, my, maybe you don't get frustrated. I can't, if I were you, <laughs> straightforward. Yeah. So just do it. Yeah. yeah. But but I, I can see, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, uh, you know, okay, and, and, and you're thinking, as once again, it's just thinking about, well, well if, I'm, if I'm not a self, then blah, blah, blah. Right. right. And you're translating this, what I hear you say, is that if I'm not a self, then nobody's in charge. Right. Right. Okay. Um, but the two don't, there's no self in charge, but that doesn't mean that there's not some control, that there's not something that's in charge. Um, you know, you are a collection of mental processes. And a business corporation like IBM, where's, I, where, where's IBM? Where's the self of IBM? Or the United States. Where's the self of the United States? It's made up of many different parts. But that doesn't mean that either IBM or the United States functions without direction, without control. It also doesn't mean that it can't be divided against itself and do a lot of harm to itself. Right? Mm -hmm. And, and the, the same thing is, is true. Uh, the most important one of your mental processes, and it's absolutely not the self, but it's the most important one in terms of the results of its actions, is there is one mental process that it uh, doesn't have any particular great intelligence or power or anything else, but its one job is to, to choose what you direct your attention towards. You know, uh, what we do when we... Uh, get into the selfing mode is we have a, a, a big black top hat that has self written on it and it has a big letter I on it or whatever, you know. And it gets passed around by different mental processes and, and you know, uh, 
so at any given time, one of them, you know, it might be the yes to the cheesecake one that's wearing the hat, or it might be the we've got a jog every day that gets to wear the eye hat, you know. But if you, it's not a self, but you can let the intention directing process where the uh, where the eye hat and be supported by the other mental processes that uh, uh, don't want you to be suffering from fear and uh, don't want you to be trapped in the same loops all, all the time. You can change who you are. And here the word you refers to the five aggregates and the collective mental processes and everything that makes it up. It doesn't refer to one entity. And you can use the term I, you know, but I means this body and this mind, which is not a single thing, but it's a group of things. It's only when, when we use I and at the back of, uh, back of the uh, idea of, of I is there is this self-existent thing, this persistent, you know, the same I that was here yesterday and last week and last year and, and is going to be here all day tomorrow no matter which situation I'm in and no matter who I'm talking to. And that's not, that doesn't exist. But that's the I that comes up when we're afraid. That's the I that comes up when we're filled with desire. That's the I that comes up when we're grasping. It's a convenient fiction that there is this self that everything can be oriented towards. But there really is a collective. Yes, Larry? I'm just wondering, what creates the sense of continuity between all these different eyes? <coughs> well, it's, it's because they are causally connected. You know, um, there is, there is uh, you know, causal connection. It's many different processes taking place simultaneously and different ones predominating at different times. But you are a completely different person than you were when you were 10 years old. Nevertheless, we can trace a, a causal sequence. It, you know, if, if we had the ability to dissect your mental processes, we could probably trace all the changes that the ones that were present in the 10-year-old Larry went through to become the ones that there are today. But that's the only thing is that the causal continuity, it, you know, it's like, it's like uh, the example of Paul Bunyan's axe. You know, I've got the original Paul Bunyan's axe. The head's been replaced 20 times and the handle's been replaced 60 times, but it's the original axe. <laughs> you know? And that's, that's the kind of continuity that there's definitely a, a causal continuity between the, you know, you, you have a scar on your arm, it's because of something that you, you did in the past, you got a cut. But, but it's the I that we project and imagine that is the problem. It's not the fact of the causal continuity in the five aggregates and in the different mental components that make us up. You know. But it, thinking of yourself as a composite, when you find yourself uh, 
suffering, for whatever reason, it 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 means that if you could find a way to shift which the way the parts of this metal composite are functioning in the right way, that you could create a different way of being, a different state of being, a different experience for the collective that you really are. And that's what we're trying to get to. To to achieve that wisdom, that understanding that allows us to be that kind of being, that our mind experiences happiness, a kind of bliss. And our mind is no longer interpreting is, is no longer generating satisfaction, happiness, unhappiness, misery, things like this, based on external experiences and, and external things that are arising. That mind stays in a serene state of happiness. And the mind also understands and uh, evaluates the circumstances that are prevailing and are affecting the the integrity of the body and mind, and therefore can produce reactions, but without attachment to those reactions. And can also recognize that all of these other beings are just like they are, and uh, uh, can experience compassion. This is, this is, uh, you don't lose anything by giving up the I. You know, you still have all the same parts, but they're not forced into functioning in the old ways that they were. Um, Once you, once you no longer, uh, once the way your mind functions is no longer being driven by the notion of an I, then you can go and start working on those other built-in mechanisms, the desire and aversion, the craving. Because they only carried logic for the mind as long as there was a concept of an I. So without the concept of an I, now you can start eliminating the desire and aversion. You see that they're no longer serving the kind of purpose that they would if there was really... Uh, this kind of self in there. We still retain that experience of separateness, even when desire and aversion are gone. You know, it's, it's this consciousness peering out of these eyes, and there is this experience of separateness. And as long as that's there, we'll cling to that. And even though we may be pretty much imperturbable and immune to suffering due to pleasure and pain and loss and gain in the world, we still have this attachment to existence and we don't want this separate existence that we feel that we are to... to, It feels like it's something that we could lose and we're terrified by the thought of losing. And that's the last thing that we need to let go of because ultimately... Once again, this is the part that you've got to take on faith for the time being. But 
ultimately that is very just as much an illusion as the personal self is, that sense of separateness. We are not separate. We are there there is only one ultimate truth and uh, uh, there is any separateness of experience is an illusion. But the consciousness that looks out my eyes and feels so separate is absolutely indistinguishable from the consciousness that looks out your eyes. And I promise you that if you could come into my mind and look out my eyes, there wouldn't be any difference. And if I felt your pain, it wouldn't feel the slightest bit different than when I feel pain. That separateness just is is just as much an illusion as the rest of it. Okay, so what else? Yes. This has all reminded me of uh, of something. Uh, I twelve years ago I bought a computer for the first time, and so I had to decide. choice and uh 
so I'm choosing to look at it as every time I go back to the breath, I say, oh, this is great. You know, I'm, I'm here again. And it, it, it doesn't really last very long, but, but I can still keep going back to it. So every time I go back to it, I say, ah, well, I can do it. And, and I, don't, I don't get caught in the idea of, well, what if I can't get back to it? Because mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've done it enough in those repetitions start to become a habit and, and uh, you know I hope that eventually I can stay with the breath longer but uh, but I you know I've got the confidence that it keeps me doing it each time so I guess you know that seems like that's enough I mean I don't need to to solve the ultimate question of, of life universe and everything right now but uh, but I, I Absolutely, yeah, that's confidence builder. Yeah. Good, very good. Thank you. So what computer did you buy? Yeah. <laughs> well, I started out with a PC and now I have a Mac. <laughs> my mind was on it during the meditation when you talked about anger and as a very strong emotion. Uh, could you talk a little bit about impulses which mostly are habitual responses and which we want to change versus um, intuitive or spontaneous response where, where it's also there is not a time of reflection but it, it feels right? Um, can you can you talk a little bit of, and, and also about you said you know the physical com discomfort when you have a strong um, a strong emotion like anger are very clear in the body but when it's not so strong like for example impatience the the signs of the body are much more subtle how do you how do you cut right through that then uh. I'll just answer the second one first, and then I have another question or I take up the first one. The, the thing about uh, impatience, yes, it's not nearly as strong as anger, and so it's, it doesn't produce as strong body, bodily sensations, but it's also much easier to examine the effective quality of that emotion, that mental state. You know, and if you can direct your mindfulness at impatience, well, impatience doesn't feel good. As a matter of fact, when we experience impatience, uh, it makes us, you know, it makes us want to do something to change. And so, you know, you can look at impatience and uh, a little more directly, and you have to look at it a little more directly since you know it doesn't cast quite as as large a penumbra into different sensory realms. Um, also with impatience, because the mind is much cooler, you can look at it and say, okay, you know, if I let this impatience continue, uh, it's just going to, it's going, going to become stronger and it's going to affect more and more other things. And, and uh, you know, you, you can see more clearly what its consequences are. And just place your mindful, mindful awareness on that. 
So I many times have had the uh, experience of something, you know, and computers is a good, if there's anything in the world that can yeah. teach you about, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know and you, you, you really want to do something, like, you know, you're on the way out the door and you just want to print this one thing, and of course that's when, you know, your computer says, can't find a printer. <laughs> or something like that. But if you if you have the habit of mindfulness and you see that happening, you realize, okay, now how I react to this event is going it can have a profound effect on how the whole rest of the day goes. You know. So if I get really annoyed that I can't print and then I go out and get in my car and then somebody cuts me off and that block next block and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I mean, I could be absolutely miserable by mm-hmm. by the, you know a few hours later. So you and that awareness can be there, and and that will, you know, just being aware of that, you'll find that the impatience dissipates. And if you do that, if you get in the habit of doing that, you'll find that uh, impatience arises less often. That's my experience. Is that it just isn't isn't there under the kinds of circumstances that used to bring it about? Don't. And um, now the second, did that, that was the first part of your question? But did that answer adequately the second part? Yeah, I'm, I'm not there, but yes, okay. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. Right, but it, but just the simple answer is is if it's not so strong that it produces physical mm-hmm. sensations then go ahead and look at the state of the mind itself and, and its effective quality and, and its results. Now the first part you're asking about, you were asking about uh, habitual emotional reactions. Impulses, yeah. Impulses. And intuitions. And yeah, what's, I want to ask you a question before I answer that. You, know, you wanted me to compare those. Give me an example of what you mean by an intuition so I know I'm answering the right question. I, I don't know uh, an example right now, but I know that when I act on impulses, I usually have second thoughts later, mm-hmm. regrets, or then I start the reflection and the mindfulness. And when I have an, 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 a clear response, uh, very spontaneous, very intuitive, it feels right, even later, even when when I created something which was not comfortable for other persons, mm-hmm. maybe in a relationship, or even for myself, I still feel it's right. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't know which one is, is then uh, um, the mindfulness of, I, I'm, I'm acting, I'm reacting very fast in both mm-hmm. ways. But one is where I have second thoughts, and the other one is, yeah, well, that's it. That, that, that I'm not going away from that. So you're clear after about the difference after yeah. the fact. Yeah. You know. uh, well, <clears throat> if you if you can, you say you react very quickly. If you have the time to examine it mindfully, usually the best thing to look at and to ask yourself is is what is driving this? Where, where is this coming from? Is this, is this based in desire or aversion? You know, and if you can sense. Because most of, most of our habitual reactions, I mean, that's why we have habits, is so that we, you know, we uh, don't have to 
think and solve the same problem every time. We don't have to decide every single time we see a saber-toothed tiger running at us that it's, you know, after we decided the first time, then from then on it's a habit. <laughs> Silly example, but you know, you know what I mean. And so, but it's also really clear that there's some kind of fear or aversion that is, is operating there. And the same thing is true with most of your habitual reactions is that, uh, is that there, there is the desire, the aversion that arises and what, what is happening is some mental process is recognizing the experiential pattern of the moment, right? And, uh, and then producing a, a sort of stereotypical or habitual for you reaction to what is recognized. And you'll, if you look mindfully, you'll see the, that it has the flavor of, of desire, aversion, or, I mean, those are the two very general terms. I mean, the aversion might take the form of, of fear or uh, could, could have other more subtle flavors. But you'll recognize those. And if you say, well, that's not really a very wholesome reason to make a decision. Maybe, maybe I should take a moment to allow some of my other mental resources to have a say in this. Um, your intuitions are, you know, probably not going to be so obviously related to to some unwholesome sort of feeling driving it. And what intuitions are, we have mental processes taking place out of view of our conscious awareness. And sometimes they, you know, like uh, psychological studies have shown that everybody reads body language and most people are not consciously aware of the body language that they, they're reading. But, you know, it can be objectively verified that the Yes, if I show this same little piece of videotape to 20 people, you know, uh, even though they don't consciously know why they're doing it, they'll, you know, 18 out of the 20 is going to have the same response to it. That's the kind of thing that intuition is. It's those, those mental processes that, you know, there wasn't some sort of conscious, uh, analytical, this or that, Mac or PC, anything like that, but it's just, boom, there it was. As long as you don't see that it's got some clear results in uh, uh, desire, aversion, or confusion, you know, <laughs> it, it's, uh, uh, it may turn out to be quite trustworthy. But just in general, mindfulness, mindfulness when you cultivate it and, and you train yourself, starts to take the form of looking at what are the motivations behind your thoughts and actions. And you start to say something and you see, oh, I, I, I want to look good. You know? And I say, well, okay, that's not a really good reason for saying this. You know? or, or I want to make somebody else feel bad. That's definitely not a good reason for saying this. 